Here's, here's the question I'd like to begin with. Have more people lost their faith in Christ because of suffering? Or have more people come to faith in Christ because of suffering? I wonder how you would answer that question. Have more people lost their faith in Christ because they've looked at suffering and said, no way do I want to serve a God uh, like this? Or have more people come to faith in Christ because of suffering? Now, I don't know the answer to that question. But I have some thoughts that lean me one way. And let me tell you what those thoughts are and then get into more of the substance of where we're going. Um, You could take take Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Or you could take Elie Wiesel's book, Night, and put them beside each other. And in one, you have the story of the uh, Russian gulag and a man coming to faith. Because of horrific suffering. And in Elie Wiesel, the Jewish man who experienced as a 15-year-old the Buchenwald concentration camp, losing faith because of the horrors of what he saw. And which of those two experiences has been more common in the world? Um, Here are my reflections. One, I have never heard of anyone... Speaking of coming to a serious awakening to the reality of God because everything has gone well in their lives. Ever. I've never heard of a single testimony of a person describing the depth and the power and the wonder of the living God because they've never had a problem. Never. But... Over and over and over again, I hear testimonies, and I think I'd be willing to talk in terms of millions of people who document their awakening to the reality of the living God through the miseries of their lives. Make of it what you will. That's a factor that would go into answering that question. Um, Another factor would be the cry that seems to come unbidden from the mouth of those in immediate calamity is God, Christ. Very strange. Never, overstatement, do I see a person walk in a bathing suit out of their big hotel onto the beach and say, God. even though it's just as much gloriously God giving them that vacation, but they don't know it, they don't feel it, they don't say anything about it, they don't awaken to God because of the beach. I was, some of you saw this probably, I was led to a video on a news, internet news site about a plane crash at a Polish air show. Do you see that? And uh, I'm just a glutton for tragedies uh, because I try to just feel what's in the world, not just know what's in the world. And so I, I clicked on that and went there. And these, you know, it's one of these air shows where four planes are coming at at different levels and they go over like this. And these two planes came and they just collided. 
and we'll like this. Now, this is in Polish. This guy who's talking about what he's seeing is in Polish. I'm not understanding a word of what he's saying. And when this collision happens, if you've ever heard the tape of the Hindenburg going down in flames, that big blimp, and this man is just, oh, God. And so this is in Polish, but I'm hearing one word. Cristo, Cristo, Cristo. Where did that come from? Um, my own experience, and I think it's probably typical, is that we feel the reality of eternity when we're near our own death or other people's death. Funerals do it. Mom's death does it. Dad's death does it. Children's death does it. You're near death and and the clouds of life just seem to be blown away and you see eternity in the clearest colors and you have to deal with what's there. One more factor that goes into a possible answer to that question is that from the little I've read and thought about it, it seems to me that there are... Uh, illustrations of why people who are relativistic, ah, God, just don't even think about God, can not only be driven away from him by suffering, but driven to him by suffering. Let me just sketch out what has happened for some, and it's a surprise to to many to know this happens, and it, it has happened. So a great evil happens, say the Holocaust, six million murders happen. Or the Stalinist Soviet gulag, where ten times that number happened in the 1930s and 40s. And and a human soul, say a Wheaton student, just kind of coasting along, not thinking about God, just in love with worldly pleasures, scarcely giving any thought to spiritual reality at all, not really believing that there is anything absolute in the world, just me and my pleasures, and what good for you is good for you, and good for me is good for me, and contemporary postmodern air we breathe, just coasting along in the dream world of relativism, and suddenly they're confronted with an evil so horrible and so great as to make the soul scream with ultimate moral indignation. No! No! And suddenly they, they find themselves coming out of their mouth is a conviction. They didn't have any convictions up till now. Just do your own thing. And suddenly they hear themselves saying in absolute tones, No, this is evil. And they're so stunned by their own conviction, they don't know what to do with it. It totally takes them off guard. They've moved into another world from kind of the... Academic gamesmanship of relative, relativity and postmodern epistemology. They suddenly move from the game playing of life into no! 
an absolute no. Nothing you say is going to change my mind. Period. Evil. It happened for some at 9-11. Happened on airwaves. People don't believe in evil. Talking about evil. That is an amazing phenomenon. And they find themselves facing an evil that is so great, they know it has objective moral reality outside themselves. This is not a creation of their brain. This is not an echo. This is not a projection onto reality from their desires. This is absolutely wrong. And they've moved from one world to another, and now they're faced with the question, how do you account for that? How do you account for absolute wrong? What's the meaning of absolute wrong? What's the root and basis of absolute wrong? And not all, but many conclude God. If there's no God... If there's no personal, moral being defining objective reality, which I have just recognized, then everything that I call evil is simply an alternative electrical, chemical working of this evolutionary thing called Homo sapiens. And deep down, you know, it's no. So it is. Is it not amazing that even the worst calamities? can turn people to God. So I'm not sure what the statistical probabilities are or analysis is to that question of has suffering produced more believers in Christ or has it produced more rebels against Christ? I don't know. I just know that everywhere I look, I see evidences in history and in my life and in others that suffering is is an amazingly powerful, redemptive thing in people's lives. I have seen people walk away from the faith. In my own church, we had a an experience 15 years ago which caused 230 people to leave and disillusioned hundreds. And, and, uh, and I remember one man in particular, young man in his 30s, who just said to me about a month or two later, said, I just can't even believe it anymore. I just can't even believe it anymore. The gospel. It's just, if, if this kind of thing can happen in a church, then I'm done. So I'm not naive that it works the other way. I'll tell you another little story that just came to my mind. There was a woman and her 13-year-old daughter who showed up the night we did mega church discipline. Told the whole church the horror of what had happened, this immorality thing. And, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody was trembling. It was just awful. And... Uh, She came to me several months later and she said, our first day at this church with my 13 year old daughter was when you when you exposed the evil, did the discipline and everybody was awestruck at the horror of it all. And we knew this is where we want to be. So 
People are different and life is complex. So what I want to do in the minutes we have together here is ask the question, why does a world of terrorism and pain exist? I want to try to answer or give what feels to me the ultimate answer that I can find in, in this book to the question, why this terrorized and troubled world? And I have four answers. And uh, when we're, we're done in a few minutes, I'll, I'll let you go to the microphones and ask anything you want about anything under the sun. And I'll answer whatever I can, which won't be everything. I have four reasons why I think this world exists the way it is. Number one, uh, well, let me give you two reasons why I don't think it exists, because I just need to rule out two answers. One, I don't think this world exists because God doesn't have control over it. said that this morning. Let me underline it again. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Not a, not a bird falls to the ground apart from your father, Matthew 10, 29. Even the winds and the sea obey him, Matthew 8, 27. So, tsunami? Hurricane, Felix? Even the winds and the sea obey him. If he says to a wave, go flat, it goes flat. It just, it does not argue. He can walk on water. He stands up in a boat. Peace. Peace happens. The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. I'm not impressed with Las Vegas. Every roll of the dice, God decides the points that come up. There's no doubt about it. It's as clear as a bell. This is clear Bible. The lot, the dice are cast in the lap. Every decision is from the Lord. People ask me, now you believe sovereignty goes down to the details? I said, like, you mean like one hair turning white or black? One bird in Uganda just falling? Boop. Yes, I do. That's what the Bible says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 21, 1. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Lamentations 3.37. Does disaster befall a city unless the Lord has done it? Amos 3.6. He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. Mark 127. I am God and there is none like me saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46. So the, the answer that the world is in the mess it's in because God doesn't have control over it won't work for me. If you can make that work. Number two, wrong answer. The reason this terrorized, troubled world exists is because God is evil. Wrong answer. Or unrighteous or unjust. First John 1 John 1.5 This is the message we have heard from the beginning and we proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is upright in all His ways. Good and upright is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. He's not evil. 
He's holy, he's good, he's light. As a banner over every evil that has ever happened, God speaks these words from Genesis 50:20. You meant it for evil, I meant it for good. So those are wrong answers. Doesn't have the control, he's bad. I reject both of those answers. I'm looking for another one. If I don't find one in the Bible, I'll just live with that. I'm okay. I don't have to know everything. I'll see through a glass darkly. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. I don't expect to have all the answers in this life. I just want to ask the Bible, do you have an answer for me? Can you take me? How far will you take me? So here are my four answers to the questions why this terrorized and awful world exists that we face and we're a part of we're part of the problem number one this world exists because god planned a history of redemption culminating in christ a history of redemption and then permitted adam and eve to fall to put in place the necessary prerequisites for that history First, Second uh, Timothy one nine, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God gave us grace. Grace is His kindness and favor towards undeserving people in Christ, meaning Christ purchased it, bought it, freed God to give it to sinners before the ages began. So he's planning redemption before the fall. And therefore, I'm arguing the fall was ordained for the sake of that history of redemption. Here's another verse in that regard. Revelation 13:8. All who dwell upon the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb that was slain. So there was a book before creation. It's called The book of the life of the lamb that was slain before Adam fell. There was a book with the blood of Jesus all over it in the mind of God. So I conclude, this doesn't feel like any big exegetical jump to me. I conclude God has in his mind a history of redemption. He's going to do amazing saving works through history, culminating in the sending of his son to die for sinners. If you ask, why? Why is he planning that? I think it would be fair to say Things have been revealed. If you just read your Bible and say, now what are you revealing about yourself in redemptive history that we wouldn't know if there were no redemptive history? 
Things like mercy, grace, justice, wrath, patience, saving wisdom, and on and on. Things that would be totally unrevealed about God were there no dealing with sin. Knowing God most fully is what it means to be loved. And therefore, for God to put in place a world in which he could be most fully known is a very loving thing to do. Even if it includes sin and evil. Because there are things about him we would not know, cherish, love, admire, delight in. Praise him for, they would be concealed, they wouldn't be revealed, and therefore we wouldn't know him fully, and therefore we couldn't delight in him and enjoy him and love him fully, and therefore his love to us would be small. That's answer number one. Answer number two is that um, this world exists the way it does because having planned a history of redemption and ordained that Adam and Eve sin, God now brings the consequences of that sin justly upon them and the whole world. So I'll read the text I read this morning, a little more of it. Romans eight eighteen. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now mark this. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. So what that is saying is that when Adam fell, God subjected the whole world to futility and bondage to decay and misery and death. He disordered the natural world. That's why there are hurricanes. That's why there are little animals that eat each other. That's why there's all kinds of misery in the world. God subjected the world to futility not by its will, but by his will, in hope that one day it would be set free. Because evidently in the process of subjecting it and bringing it out, more of what he is like is revealed than would have been revealed otherwise. Which causes me to ask, okay, if that's the plan, what's, what am I to make of why there is so much Horrible physical pain in the world. And my answer is that God has ordained physical pain as a trumpet blast to describe in a parable what moral evil is really like. It goes like this. Um, How many people in the world wake up in the morning and scream with indignation 
that they are so dishonoring of God. How many people that you know, how many, how many of you go to bed at night or wake up in the morning just outraged that humanity, including Wheaton students and pastors, give God less attention than the carpet on their living room floor? How many people are emotionally just bent out of shape over that? Nobody. That's how many. Nobody, not one person on the planet, has an emotional response to sin anywhere near as serious as it should be. If you've been crying over your sins, I'll tell you what's been happening. A huge portion of your grief is over the consequences of sin and not the sin. You're in pain. Things aren't going well in your life and you're miserable and you know sin's the reason and you're weeping your eyes out. But a lot of that is over how bad things are going. Otherwise, you would have been weeping way earlier because you were just as sinful before. None of us has the emotional capacity to see sin for what it is. When anybody blackballs God, distrusts God, says no to God, ignores God, they deserve a thousand hells. Because the seriousness of a sin is measured by the dignity of the one you sin against. Not by the length of the sin... Not by our presumed definitions of bad and good sins. God is infinitely worthy of infinite allegiance. And how far we fall short of perfect allegiance is untold. And nobody cares anywhere near the level that they should care. Now, what would you do about that if you were God? You would put in the world parables of the horror of sin. Namely, cancer, war, horrible accidents. The meaning, when when you see something horrible and you get so mad, you should pause at that moment and just transfer that anger over onto sin. That's the point. The point of all the physical reality in the world, both the positive, which should cause you to put it over onto praise, and the negative, which should cause you to put it over onto the indignation against the sin that brought it into the world. Adam's and yours and mine. That's why there's so much physical horror in the world. It doesn't have any end in itself. It's pointing. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and shouts at us in our pains. And he was right. Oh, that we would all see how repugnant and offensive and abominable it is to ignore, distrust, demean God, which is what this world does almost all the time. That this world experiences the rising of the sun every morning made Jesus wonder. Didn't it? Matthew 5, 44. 
He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. I think when Jesus said that, he just said, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He makes the sun to rise on Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs who make disciples sons of hell worse than themselves. And you're alive, having sex with your wife and healthy in your body. Blew Jesus away that so much good comes to this world. But the evil of the physical world, I think, is all pointing toward the evil of the moral world. And thus God is shouting at us if we had ears to hear. Third reason I think this world is the way it is, is to provide a occasion whereby the lovers of the Son of God could display his superior worth over everything that their suffering causes them to lose. I made this point this morning. I'll just make it again briefly here. If you were to ask, why is there so much privation in the world? People not having what they need. One of the reasons, and it's not simple. There are way more reasons than this. But one of the reasons is that... The worth of Christ is magnified and glorified when Christians lose everything and only have Christ and say, gain. He's enough. Across the world, there are millions of people who in the name of Christ are content with trouble. And that makes Christ shine. Now, I said this morning, I'll say it again, Christ's glory shines when he meets our needs. And we should thank him. The crescendo of thanksgiving in this college should blow the roof off of every classroom. But when you get mono, like I did in the fall of 1966, it's the beginning of my junior year, and spent three weeks in the health center. I don't know what it is now. It's a building that's uh, just across from the library on this side. Uh, so here I am, flat on my back for three weeks. Big yellow tonsils. What is this little thing above the liver called? Pancreas. Wherever it is. <laughs> it swells up. And, and the doctors put their hand here and they say, take a deep breath. And they take a deep breath and he's got, his hand goes, boop, <laughs> like that. So I was very sick, very miserable, listening to Harold John Ockengay on the WETN radio station. And my whole life was changed. I will never cease to thank God for mononucleosis. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I had taken summer school to catch up, took chemistry so I could get on track with pre-med. And now I'm registered for organic chemistry. And you missed three weeks of organic chemistry? (laughs) It's over, unless you want to take another year to go to Wheaton. And as I lay there, I listened to this man handle the Bible, and everything in me said, I want to know this book the way John Harold Ockengay knows this book. 
I want to handle this book the way he does. I don't know whether I want to be a preacher or a teacher or a writer or missionary or what. I just know I am being moved to the depths of my being by this exposition. So I dropped organic chemistry and I shifted my whole next six years of my life, no, eight years of my life to to Bible study and all of that because of mononucleosis. Amazing. God has his ways. I've said enough on that this morning. Let me go to the last one here and then we'll take some questions. Um, Fourth, the most important one. The reason this world exists the way it is, is so that Jesus Christ would have a place to suffer and die. The reason there is terror in the world is so that Jesus Christ would be terrorized. The reason there's trouble in the world is so that Jesus Christ could be troubled. The reason there's pain in the world is so that Jesus Christ could experience pain. This is the world that God prepared for the suffering and the death of his son. That was the apex of his plan is that the son of God be killed and tortured. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for you through the death of Jesus. Had there been no world where there's death, no world where there's torture, no world where there's sin, that love would not have come to you. The love of God is supremely manifest in the death of his son. He who did not spare a lot in that phrase. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not with him freely give us all things? And he would have spared him had there no had there been no no pain for him to experience and no death for him to die. No torture for him to walk through. Let me close with a text. This text, if you come to terms with this text, the tentacles it will send out into your mental framework about God and in your practical framework in dealing with people is untold. So let me read this text and then close with just a comment or two about it. This is Acts 4.27 and it's about Jesus and his death which I think is the center of the universe. I think the whole universe exists to display the supremacy of the grace of Jesus Christ. And the apex of that revelation is in his death and resurrection. Truly, this is Acts 4.27, Truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Talking to God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In this city were gathered together Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do what your hand planned and predestined to take place. 
Now, what did Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel do? And the answer is they committed the greatest sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world or ever will be committed. They killed the son of God. They killed him in the most horrible fashion. They lied about him. They scorned him. They pulled on his beard. They spit in his face. They buffeted him around. They hit him with rods. They hit him with lashes. Who knows how many times. And then they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross and stuck a spear in his side and put a crown of thorns on his head and said, if you, the son of God, come down. That's what this is talking about. Let me read it again. Truly in this city... They were gathered together against the holy servant Jesus, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now, the reason I say that the tentacles of that will go out into all of your theology and all of your practical life is because one of the most crucial mysteries of life is contained there and let me state it i won't explain it you can ask me to explain it later if you want but i won't be able to so don't bother um the 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 mystery is this in ordaining that sin happen god does not sin now there's a step that principle which i don't bring to the bible like I learned that in some philosophy book, and I'm going to use it to solve Bible problems. I didn't learn that anywhere. I came to that absolutely kicking and screaming between 1968 and 1971. God, in ordaining that sin be, is not himself Sinning, He is holy and light and good. And I'm simply willing to live with that mystery. And in ordaining that there be sinners, he does not remove their absolute accountability and responsibility. So that at the last day, there will be no legitimate objections raised against his sentences. And that's a mystery I'm willing to live with. You know, sometimes reformed folks like me, I remember hearing this. Back at Fuller, and I'm done. I'll stop in about two minutes, one minute maybe. Um, I remember, I remember us being criticized in those days as I was struggling through these things as a student. That uh, reform people, Calvinist types, are are logic driven. <laughs> I just kind of. I've never met an Armenian who doesn't use logic against me. And I'm just kind of saying, it says this and it says this. I don't know. Just, I'm going to believe them. That's, that's the way, that's, I don't, I don't get that. So if you want to ask about that, I'd be happy for you to ask about that. But I see a, I see a text like this. The greatest sin that was ever committed in the history of the world was planned by God. Namely, the death of his son. And I say, all right, if you can manage that, you can manage Adam and everything else. So I'm going to say this world exists under 
not alongside, but under your sovereign rule. And I'm just spending my life trying to discern the good things God is doing and then pour my life out to rescue as many people as possible from rebelling against him. Let me pray. And then we have two microphones, one there and one there. And you line up and we can go for 30 or 40 minutes, I'm told. So I don't know if you want to go that long. I'm frankly as hot as blazes up here. So uh, I'm doing this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, you would now take anything I've said that's amiss and cancel it out. And if I have spoken truth, confirm it by your spirit. Indeed, don't just confirm it in the head, but apply it. Make it live. Make it useful for children. Make it useful for old people in nursing homes. Make it useful for missionaries. Make it useful for the urban poor and the rich in the suburbs. Make it useful, Lord, for marriages and useful for singles. We're not interested in playing games here. We just want to know truth for the sake of obedience and praise and honor to Christ.